Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. I stumbled upon a very curious statement whilst reading a Newsweek magazine the other day. I find that I'm usually a week or so behind since these arrive on a on my iPad every Friday and I'm always finding that I'm behind. So after the main articles are read, I tend to speed read through the rest of the newspaper magazine, scanning the remaining articles for things of interest to me. This week I spotted a curious entry which stopped me for a moment of reflection. It was in the science and technology section and the article was entitled The Origin of the Species, ending with a question mark. Interesting. It was a question. So when I saw that question mark, I knew I needed to pause and pay a little more attention to it. Sometimes these scientific articles are a little heavy, not like reading, and this one was no exception. It discussed the recent findings of a couple of researchers from Harvard University into the DNA of human beings. Whereas it seems in the past, scientists had assumed that much of the protein combinations in the DNA module were just fillers, and there was about 1% of the cells that were significant. It is now becoming clear, however, apparently, that as much as two-thirds of this formerly assumed muck is actually of some vital importance. Said another way, 99% of the mass within the human genome was assumed to be merely fillers, separating the 1% that really mattered in the makeup of a human being. The genes that make up a living soul and give it characteristics and personality, that give the instructions to the cells to divide and become meaningful parts of the human being. Much of the article delved into terms and structure that required too much concentration for me to follow, sufficient to say that it was generally interesting but too deep to really engage me fully. Then I came upon the sentence that captured my interest and about which I refer this morning. Let me quote it for you. Referring to the sequence of suggestions offered by the authors of the research, the article says, and I quote, this is a long chain of speculation, but it looks a fruitful one, for it is still the case that, after more than a century and a half after Charles Darwin published On the Origin of the Species, biologists do not fully understand how species actually do originate. End of quote. That's exactly what I read. Biologists do not fully understand 150 years later, how species actually do originate. Here's our first song call.
Biologists do not fully understand how species originally actually do originate. I had to read that again and again to make sure I was reading it correctly. What an admission! Even though we are criticized and even ostracized if we dare to argue that Darwin's research is still only a theory and has never been proven as a fact, even though in most schools and universities around the world, I dare say, Darwin's theory is actually presented as a scientific fact, allowed to be given as scientific fact. But now, in this very reputable and widely accepted newspaper, 
the journalist states what is, for me at least, the obvious and has always been the obvious. The top scientists, while they probably subscribe to the theory of evolution and buy into Darwin wholeheartedly, they must be honest and admit that they do not fully understand how the species actually do originate after all. So you must allow me to say it. Darwin has a theory on how these things happened. He did not know then, and scientists still don't, do not know 150 years later. I admit, though, that the article does seem to accept that evolution of the species did occur, much like Darwin has speculated, but the article, as I've indicated, clearly admits that they really do not know. So being a simple island boy, I take the Bible literally, and I accept in faith the statement, in the beginning, God created. So, if you will, I know how it all began, even if they don't. The Bible makes it clear. Scientists still do not understand because many will not accept the record of the Bible. Their scientific research is fascinating. The more we learn about the wonders of creation, the better we understand how God made all this for us and how he made us, the more we can thank him for all that he has done for us to appreciate. My conclusion, what an awesome God we serve. Harder 
Build steeples out of stone Fill books with explanations of the way But if we stop and listen And break a little bread We would hear the Master say Loving God, loving each other, making music with my friends. Loving God, loving each other. And now with his message for today, here's our pastor, Alan Lee. Good morning. Today, in our ongoing exposition of the first epistle of John, we are looking at the passage that extends from verse 13 to verse 20 of chapter 5, in which the apostle cites six certainties of the Christian. We have already considered two of them, the certainty of possessing eternal life, and the certainty of answered prayer. The third certainty of the Christian the Apostle addresses in the passage is that of victory over sin and Satan, and he deals with this in verse 18. I read it now. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him, end of quote. That's verse 18 of First John chapter 5. Now, John reiterates the truth that he stated previously in chapter 3, verse 9. This is what he said there. No one who is born of God continually practices sin, 
because God's seed or nature abides in him. And he, that is the Christian, cannot continually practice sin because he is born of God. This is why John can now say in chapter 5, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. Now, for many, this is another one of those very difficult passages. But as we explained previously, John is referring to a lifestyle of continual sinning, not an occasional or periodic slipping into sin. He now gives the reason why it is impossible for a genuine Christian to revert to a lifestyle of continual sin. This is what he says, and I quote again, The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Now again, this is where we must read Scripture very carefully and study it very carefully. Because this verse has unfortunately been mistranslated in the authorized or King James Version. The King James Version reads this way, The one who is born of God keeps himself, meaning that the Christian keeps himself from the evil one, who of course is the devil. However, we know from the whole tenor of Scripture, the whole counsel of God, as well as specific statements that this is impossible. The Christian cannot, in his own strength, keep himself from the attacks, influence, or impact of the devil upon his or her life. That's an unfortunate consequence of a mistranslation of the King James Version. Now, the Greek word on this phrase does not mean himself, but only him. Grammatically, as well as theologically, the one doing the keeping could be either God the Father or Jesus Christ himself. If the Father is meant, then the text would read, the one who is born of God is kept by God the Father. However, in context, and in others as well, it seems best to see this as referring to God the Son, Jesus Christ, as the one who keeps the Christian. This is so because the keeping of the believer, as far as salvation is concerned, is always attributed to Jesus Christ in the New Testament. For instance, listen to his words himself in John 17, verse 2. I quote, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Notice, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. End of quote. Also, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.12, I know in whom I have believed, meaning Christ, and I am persuaded that he, meaning Christ, is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Jesus makes it even more certain in John 10, verses 27 through 30. Listen to these wonderful words. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. End of quote. And so it is clear from Scripture, it is Christ, God the Son, who preserves and secures the believer in his salvation, not the believer. In other words, our eternal security is eternal 
because Jesus Christ himself is securing it and not us. John is saying, then I repeat, that a genuine believer can be absolutely certain that his eternal life is, in fact, eternal life. And it is so because it is both given and secured by Jesus Christ himself. No one can harm him, not even the devil, when it comes to our certainty of salvation. This, I say, is a certainty of protection from and victory over the devil because he is kept secure by Jesus Christ himself. Again, I say, our security is with Christ and not with we ourselves as believers. John describes a fourth certainty of the Christian in verse 19, where he once more emphasizes the contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil. Listen to his words. We know, and he uses this phrase again and again, this passage, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Now here we have the certainty of being the children of God and not the children of the devil. The first phrase in this verse is best translated, we know that we are from God because the preposition used here indicates both source and possession. Christians are from God in the sense that they are spiritually begotten by him. We have our source in him, and therefore we belong to him. Christians belong to God because we have our source and origin in God the Father. We are his children because he is our father. John further states that the whole world lies in the power or under the control of the evil one. Now, in what sense is this true? Is not the Christian a part of the whole world? No, not in the sense the apostle is using it here. He is referring to the world in the same way he did in chapter 2, verse 15, where he said, and I quote, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, and so on. Now, as I explained when we studied this verse at that time, the apostle is referring to the world of unbelievers who constitute a system and way of life which leaves God completely out of the picture. It refers to a world totally and absolutely void of any reference to or influence by God. This is the world of which Satan is God and over which he has complete and absolute control. The believer, however, because he or she is kept by Christ, and are under his control and power, do not have to submit to the devil's authority. We live in a different sphere of life than does the unsaved. We live in the sphere of the resurrected life and power of Jesus Christ. We are, therefore, more than conquerors in Christ. This is how we know that we are the children of God and not the children of the devil by the fact of our ongoing victory over the devil in the power of our resurrected Lord in whom we live and dwell and have our being. So let me ask you a question as we close out this section. Do you, in fact, are you experiencing this victory over sin and Satan in your life? Have you ever done so? John's teaching in this epistle is very clear that even though it is possible and even probable 
that believers will occasionally succumb to sin and Satan's tactics to entrap in sin, the believer's life will nonetheless be one of constant and regular overcoming of the evil one. Friends, that's the apostles' teachings in this epistle, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not. Our opinions will not change the biblical fact. The triune God expects us to be victorious over sin, over Satan, and over the world. That's the expected norm for a child of God. So let me ask you then, as we enter a new year, how does your life measure up to the apostles' teaching as a professing Christian? If victory over sin is indeed an evidence of our divine sonship, do you have the assurance that you are, in fact, a child of God rather than the child of Satan? John writes this epistle to give us that certainty. I trust that we will know for a certain that we are the children of God and not the children of Satan. It can transform your entire life as you begin a new year. As always, this is Pastor Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. Therefore evermore to stay. The great command is promised, he will surely come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground. And not toiling will be Could happen in a moment. Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every moment for the mighty trumpet sound.
but in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again.